Well, you have. You are now tuned in to Parker's Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darnetta has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Greetings, my magnificent Star Wars family. I'm your host, Kyle, and you are now tuned in to the only show that will make your midichlorians dance, Star Wars Audio Archives. Brace yourself for a journey through the Old Republic that will have you floating on a sea of pure exhilaration as we journey through this amazing creation that we can't get enough of, and that's Star Wars Fatal Alliance. Are you ready for this adventure? Then let's get to it. Even before the alarms started ringing, Shigar knew something was wrong. The transport containing him and Darth Kratos lurched as though hit, and the major in charge of the drop broke off in the middle of issuing a general announcement. Shigar wasn't patched directly into the Imperial network, so he couldn't tell what was happening to the ship in real time. Instead, he was receiving data from the Republic troopers, relayed by a neutral command node. The delay between the systems was very nearly fatal. Something's not right, he told the troopers packaged up next to him in rows, ready to drop. His instincts were warning him to move. Punching the overrides on his harness, he was on his feet as the first of the hexes burst through the outer hull into the troop deployment bay. Shigar was ready for it. He force pushed the droid backward, sending it tumbling into space. There were more behind it, scrabbling for claw holds on the torn metal. He leapt at them with lightsaber swing, severing legs and stabbing at sense organs before the hexes could activate their electromirror shields. If he could stop them from getting in, he and the other passengers might have a chance. The bay wall ripped open at another point, too distant for him to take on both at once. Fortunately, the troopers behind him were ready and brought their own weapons into play. Imperial and Republic blaster fire converged on the invading hexes, knocking several back into the void. Still more came after them, climbing over one another in a horrible swarm. The hexes were returning fire now, those at the back shooting past those in the front, and Shigar felt the defense of the bay beginning to turn in the hexes' favor. Get these troopers out of here, he told the Major, between cutting two hexes each in two. On the other side of the bay, he saw the orange helmet nod. Orders went out to open the bay doors early and launch the troopers on their way to Sabaton. Acknowledgement came from two of the other three bays, and the doors below Shigar opened smoothly, jettisoning their precious cargo, the Major with them. Several hexes went too, which would no doubt make the journey more interesting for all. Shigar stayed behind, clinging to a stanchion with one hand and kicking another hex back where it came from. It wriggled and spun in freefall, six legs waving frantically. How long, he wondered, until it redesigned its innards to match the ones in orbit and grew a retro thruster or two. He wasn't sticking around to find out. The fourth and final bay hadn't sent any kind of acknowledgement. They were in trouble. He had to help them. The ship rocked underfoot as he passed through the airlock and hurried through its empty corridors. Nearing the fourth bay, he heard blaster fire, explosions, and a persistent crackling over his calm. The hexes were jamming both Imperial and Republic frequencies. That was a disturbing development. An interior bulkhead breached, sending hexes spilling over themselves into the hallway. He braced himself to meet them head-on, using a force shield to deflect their laser pulses while stabbing with his lightsaber. They hadn't expected him to be there. That much was certain. They were firing at someone attacking them from inside the bay, and it took them a moment to bring their own shields to bear. 
Shigar whipped the legs off three, not stopping to impale the fallen bodies. Immobility was good enough. A black figure leapt through the rent in the wall, wielding a red lightsaber. Lightning flashed from his open hand, sending hexes twitching and smoking in every direction. Caught between Shigar and Darth Kratos, the hexes stood no chance. In moments, Jedi Padawan and Sith Lord stood alone in a field of red, dripping droid debris. The jamming let up, allowing them to speak. The rest have launched, said Shigar. We have to get these bay doors open. Do not think to give me instructions, Padawan. You have survived this far by luck alone. Darth Kratos stalked up the hallway. The mechanism is damaged. Lieutenant Atomic will either repair it in our absence or widen the existing hole. Failing that, she will exit the ship via the other open bays. That is not our concern. Your priority, and mine, is to stop this ship being turned by the Hexes into a weapon. To the bridge, then? Said Shigar, swallowing his annoyance at being spoken to like a child. To the bridge. They encountered three swarms of Hexes on the way. Traveling in groups of six, the droids appeared to be scouring the ship section by section, destroying all evidence of Imperial insignia. The appearance of Darth Kratos and his red blade drove them into an immediate frenzy. On two occasions, Shigar was ignored completely, allowing him to flank the Hexes and attack from behind. The element of surprise was working for him for a change, turning an impossible situation into one that was merely difficult. The Sith Lord swept through Hexes with little apparent effort, leaving them for Shigar to finish off. The Sith Lord's lightsaber had an unusually long reach, emerging as it did from a collapsible stack of some kind. Darth Kratos also had another weapon that Shigar did not. His lightning was much more powerful than Eldon Axe's efforts, and had an effect similar to the electrified net Striver had fired at the Hexes on Hakkabu, sending them into paroxysms that left them vulnerable to conventional attack. The Grand Master has taught you poorly. Darth Kratos said, observing Shigar's efforts to subdue the last of the Hexes. She allows philosophy of mind to interfere with outcomes in combat. That is how the Sith will triumph over you and your kind in the end. You will hold yourselves back from achieving your true potential. Shigar blinked sweat out of his eyes. Satil Shan regarded Force Lightning as a pathway to the dark side, and had counseled Shigar many times against its use. Now, though, he could see how Darth Kratos might have a point. He wasn't so naive, however, that he couldn't see where the Sith Lord was going with this. Save your breath, Darth Kratos. Nothing will tempt me to join you. The Sith's smile was horribly humorless, even through the glass of his faceplate. The bridge was two levels up, sealed behind thick blast doors that even the Hexes were having trouble penetrating. Comms were down again, so there was no way to signal the crew within. Darth Kratos tried overriding the locks, but they had been fused into solid lumps of metal by the Hex's attempts to get in. Together, said Shigar, thinking of the huge masses he had seen Jedi Masters move using nothing but the power of their minds and the Force. On my command, agreed the Sith Lord. Operating in tandem, they were able to twist the blast doors aside as though they were made of tinfoil. Shigar considered their cooperation a small moral victory until he broke off the effort and shivered. 
Something of Darth Kratos had clung to him during the effort. A coldness and a foulness. His fists clenched as he stepped over the buckled metal and onto the bridge. He wanted to strike out at something, but there were no hexes around, just Imperials who were temporarily reprieved. The frightened-looking commander of the transport saluted as Darth Kratos closed on him. Tell me the drives are locked, was all the Sith said. I cannot, my lord. The engine room is not responding. I ordered a maintenance team. They will already be dead. Stay here. We will effect the repairs ourselves. Darth Kratos was already leaving. Perhaps you should evacuate, said Chagart to the commander before following. There's nothing you can do here. Leave my post? The Imperial looked affronted at the suggestion. Never. Chagar wanted to argue. The blast doors were down, and the hexes would be back before long. Staying meant certain death for the commander and his bridge crew. Instead, he shrugged. Who was he to fight the stubbornness of the Imperial officer? That wasn't the Jedi's job. It's your decision, I guess. Putting them from his mind, he hurried after Darth Kratos. You waste time, said the Sith when Shigar caught up. You waste lives. Humans are replaceable. Seconds are not. Shigar didn't have a good answer to that, so he concentrated on what they were doing. Darth Kratos was leading him along the transport spine, past endless rows of viewports. Outside, the galaxy turned around them, completing a circuit once every few seconds. The transport was spinning, although thanks to the artificial gravity within, there was no way of telling. Several hexes were visible, either swimming helplessly through space or crawling along the outer hull. The sphere of Sabaton came and went, and Shigar couldn't tell if it was growing nearer or not. A mass of hexes was waiting for them at the far end, at the entrance to the engineering section. Force lightning spread through them in waves, breaking the mass into manageable parts. Shigar leapt into their midst, deflecting laser pulses back at their owners and dismembering anything that came within reach. When he misjudged the sweep and caught a flesh wound on his side, the pain only heightened his concentration. He moved as though in a dream, with the force guiding his every step. Almost with regret, he reached the far side. There, Darth Kratos was examining the ion drive controls. They had been partially dismantled by one of the hexes, presumably with the intent to take control and send the transport angling upward to infect the rest of the fleet. Darth Kratos worked quickly, rewiring the controls into an approximation of their former state. The deck shook as downward acceleration resumed. You've done it? Shigar asked him. I have. Darth Kratos raised a hand, and a section of the wall peeled in, exposing the space outside. Not space anymore, Shigar realized, hearing a rising howl around them. They were entering atmosphere. After you, my boy said the Sith. Reluctant though Shigar was to turn his back on one of the Jedi's ancient enemies, he knew that for now he was safe. His master had been utterly correct. That blood-red blade was the last thing he had to fear. Four running steps took Shigar to the hole. The fifth would take him all the way from the burning ship to the planet's surface. He leapt, vowing, I will never be your apprentice, Darth Kratos. A silken, sinister voice came back to him in reply. Make no rash promises. After all, I may soon be in need of a new one. 
Shigar closed his mind against any further intrusions and concentrated solely on falling. Axe touched down neatly on both feet. The ground was secure, no hidden traps or pitfalls. She punched the button on her harness and the jet chute shut down and her airfoil fell away. Sabaddon's gravity was a little less than standard, leaving her feeling slightly lightheaded, but only for a moment. Apart from the yellow jets from the black hole, the sky was red, reflecting the glow of the surrounding lava. Keeping her eyes peeled for hexes, she took two steps forward and looked around for the others who had dropped from orbit with her. Master Satil was one of them. She didn't like knowing there was a Jedi loose she couldn't account for. The squad she'd been nominally part of had aimed for one of the most complex sections of the CI Center. From the air, the island as a whole resembled a giant hedge maze with long, winding buildings connected by thick cables and pipes. She had landed in what could have been an angular, steep-walled street, except there were no doors, windows, or pedwalks. The purpose of the buildings was unknown, but it was clear that the site was still under construction. One squad had targeted the machines responsible for expanding the structure, while the rest intended to strike at its heart. Or what appeared to be its heart from orbit, at least. There were three possible locations, and she was in one of them. Above her, troopers rained from the sky like seed pods, dropping into their own droid-made little canyons. None appeared to be landing near her. She tried her suit's comlink, but both Darth Kratos and Master Satil were either off the air or being jammed. The former's stricken transport shone in the sky like a bright star, haloed with black smoke. It appeared to be coming right for her. She quickly decided that her landing spot was jinxed, lacking even hexes to kill. So picking a direction at random, she loped along the canyon, taking what cover she could in blurry edge shadows. She kept her unlit lightsaber in her hand. Discretion was the better part of valor, particularly on a planet of hexes programmed to kill Sith warriors on sight. If only, she thought as she had many times, there was some way to tap into that core programming and turn it to her advantage. It was entirely possible that Lima Zandrit had put a little more of herself in them than just her thoughts and prejudices. The biological component of every hex had to mean something, after all. If she could appeal to that something, make it listen to reason, her reason. Around a bend came a Republic trooper, swinging his gun back and forth and running lightly on his feet. Axe stepped back into the shadows. Better to run on her own, she decided, until she was sure what lay ahead of her. She didn't want anyone getting in the way at a critical moment. As the trooper went by, she noticed a strange thing. The air was literally shimmering before her eyes. At first she thought it was something to do with her, her sight being interfered with, perhaps. But then she realized that the distortions came from the air itself. It was hot. Kneeling down and touching the ground, she could feel the heat even through her gloves. All around the CI complex was lava, so that made sense, she supposed. Something dropped soundlessly behind her. She was up with lightsaber lit in an instant. Impressive reflexes said Master Satil, to all appearances unconcerned by the possibility that Axe might have cut her in half. She hadn't even activated her own lightsaber. Your peripheral vision could use some work, though. I've bit on your tail ever since you landed. 
Well, that's a productive way to spend your time. Axe lowered her weapon to her side. It didn't occur to you to do something about the mission, I suppose? I'm the first to admit that I've got a lot on my mind. The Jedi smiled. But not that much. Take off your helmet and tell me what you hear. But... It's hot, she was about to say. Then she noticed that Master Satil was sweating inside her own helmet. Clearly she had done exactly as she asked Axe to do. And if she survived, so could Axe. All right, she said, triggering her neck seals. The helmet hissed, and she tugged it off. The air seared her skin and the inside of her nose. It stank of chemicals and fire and ozone. In the distance, she could hear voices shouting familiar phrases over and over again. We do not recognize your authority! We ask only to be left alone! Hexes, Hex said. They're here somewhere. Not that, said Master Satil with a quick shake of her head. Deeper, behind everything. Axe listened again. Then she heard it. A low-frequency growling at the very edge of her hearing, almost impossible to catch. Is it the ship? She asked, indicating the transport still falling from the sky. It was larger now, and still coming right for them. I don't think so. Sounds to me more like drilling. What's the CI doing mining at a time like this? Material for more hexes, perhaps. This isn't a factory. No, but there must be nests here somewhere. So let's find them, Axe said, not hiding her impatience. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? High above, an orange flare blossomed into life, painting strange shadows across both their faces. That's what I was waiting for, Master Satil said. The troopers have found a way in. Let's go help them. Satil Shan moved from a standing start with surprising speed. Axe was taken by surprise and had to hustle to keep up. They followed the base of the artificial ravine to the next intersection and then left to the top in order to travel in a straight line, leaping from wall to wall over the empty spaces below. The maze seemed to stretch forever. Axe was reminded of circuit diagrams or logic flowcharts, but this strange landscape lacked any overall order or purpose that she could discern. It was more like the random etchings of a wood-boring insect than anything a sentient might design. Explosions puffed brightly in the distance, reflected from wispy clouds above. The sound of each retort arrived split seconds later. Master Satil changed direction slightly to head straight for the combat zone. Troopers still dropped from the sky, firing at cannon emplacements mounted over the maze. A pall of smoke hung over everything, denser in some places than others. Axe could smell the hexes' blood faintly on the air. It gave her the jitters. She was missing out on the fun. Glancing over her shoulder, she saw a dozen hexes following them, leaping on their six legs from wall to wall. She laughed. She wouldn't be missing out for much longer. Master Satil unexpectedly dropped down into a ravine, and Axe followed. There she stopped dead. The Jedi was standing on the ground with one finger to her lips. She counted down three fingers with her other hand, and then leapt straight up into the air with lightsaber flashing. The first of the pursuing hexes fell in two equal pieces. The rest shrieked and rushed into fight. 
the battle was fast-paced and glorious. On seeing Axe, they immediately fell upon her. But she had the measure of them now. Her force shield repelled all but the most concentrated fire. And she had more than a mere Padawan and a disinterested Mandalorian to back her up. The Grand Master possessed prodigious force powers. A gesture crushed hexes into balls or blew them apart from the inside. A look stilled them in mid-lunch while Axe rushed in to finish them off. In a matter of moments, the dozen were dealt with, and Axe was looking around for more. This way, said Master Satil, guiding her to where the flare had come from. Shouldn't we be worried about that? She asked, pointing at the transport. It was huge in the sky now, or seemed so, and blazed like a false sun. Worry all you want, said Master Satil. Unless there's something you can do about it, I don't see what good it will do. Axe had no good answer to that, so she followed with something approaching obedience. The Grand Master had impressed with more than her telekinetic and telepathic skills. Her speed and decisiveness in combat were unbelievable, but she never once made a sound. Her face was calm, almost serene, as she slashed and hacked through the hexes. There was a tranquility about her, almost a blissfulness that spoke of an intimacy with violence Axe had not expected. To the Sith, violence was an art form. To Master Satil, it seemed like life itself. That didn't marry at all well with what Axe knew about the Jedi. Weren't they emotionless, self-righteous hypocrites who fought only when it suited their interests? Didn't they disdain passion and preach powerlessness to all who would listen and obey? For the first time, Axe saw that there could be strength in serenity and steel beneath stillness. Something exploded in the next ravine across. Before the debris ceased falling, Master Satil had them in the middle of a firefight between a squad of entrenched troopers and no fewer than 30 hexes. The explosion didn't seem to have had much effect on the hexes' operation as a whole. If anything, they fought more determinedly than ever. The assault teams had to find another way to attack the installation if they were to have any effect on the CI at all. The platoon's lieutenant and Imperial acknowledged their presence with a grateful wave. The Major's over there, she said, pointing when the skirmish was over. We're picking up vibrations consistent with geothermal drilling. Of course, Master Satil said. That's what they're up to. If the CI can tap into the planet's deeper layers, it'll have all the power it needs. To do what? Asked Axe. That we don't know, said the lieutenant. We found a shaft two avenues away, but it's heavily defended. We can't get close enough to lay charges. We'll take care of that, said Axe. No need, said Master Satil. Tell your troops to fall back. I want the area evacuated as quickly as possible. What? Axe couldn't believe what she was hearing. You're giving up? Not at all. Just letting something else do our work for us. She pointed at the sky, at the stricken transport bearing rapidly down on them. Yes, sir. The lieutenant began calling orders through her comlink, and backed them up with another round of flares, just in case the message wasn't received. Immediately the troopers began pulling back, firing at the hexes coming in their wake. What happens if it doesn't land in exactly the right spot? Axe asked Master Satil as they leapt across the maze. I don't think it needs to, the Jedi replied. 
If the CI is drilling for geothermal energy, those shafts will be tapping right into the magma layers. Unplug the shafts, and what will we get? A volcano, she said. Lots of volcanoes. Exactly. We could take out the Hex's brain with one hit. Best we not be standing too close when it happens, eh? Again, Axe was struck by Master Shan's calm. How could she be so sanguine when the island they were standing on might be about to erupt into flows of molten lava? Surely she felt some apprehension about what might happen. Axe flipped down the visor of her helmet so she could track exactly where the transport was going to hit. It wasn't as close to her as it seemed. The island was two kilometers across, and the impact point was on the northernmost edge. Still, she ran southward with Master Satil as fast as she could, keen to put space between herself and the inevitable explosion. While leaping from one artificial canyon wall to the next, another similarity between the maze and computer chips came to her. The walls were barely a meter or two across. They therefore couldn't possibly contain rooms or corridors, or indeed anything of any substance. She hadn't wondered what function they performed in and of themselves. Now, though, jumping through waves of hot, rippling air, it occurred to her that the walls looked like thin ridges engineers added to some computer components to increase the surface area exposed to air. The greater the area, the greater the cooling effect. Heat sinks, they were called. What if the island wasn't the Hex's coordinating brain itself, but a massive heat sink for the brain? That would mean the assault teams were attacking the wrong thing entirely. She had just enough time to wonder if the falling transport would be any different when it came down in the distance, lighting up the sky with a bright blue flash. The sound came a second later. Both the sonic boom of its passage through the atmosphere and the titanic concussion of its impact and detonation. The ground bucked beneath her feet, and she misjudged her landing on the wall of the next ravine. Wobbling for balance, she felt herself gripped by the left arm and pulled down. Master Satil steadied her on the floor of the ravine as a rush of superheated gases roared overhead. The ground bucked and buckled beneath them. Axe looked down and saw cracks spreading around her feet. That wasn't a good sign. A growing thunder drowned out the sudden return of comms. Not that she could have made anything out from the mass of warnings and contradictory orders. A rush of air swept by them. Master Satil cocked her head and pulled Axe along the ravine, away from the source of the wind. In its wake came a flood of red-hot lava. Jump! Axe cried, wrenching the Grand Master up out of the ravine. The wall crumbled beneath their combined weight, and they jumped again. The maze was collapsing around them, followed by a tide of red that spread from the crash site. The edge of the flood moved with astonishing speed, consuming troopers and hexes in broad, bubbling swaths. The volcanoes Axe had imagined were nothing compared with this silent, swift seep. The section of the maze she had explored was already subsumed. All too suddenly, the tsunami-like flood was upon them. Two thick crimson tongues closed in front of Axe and Master Satil, cutting off their best route to safe ground. Master Satil turned, pulling Axe after her. It was clear that she could have run faster on her own, but she didn't abandon Axe to her fate. Axe didn't question why. She just accepted the gesture, even as it became clear that it would doom both of them. 
the path of stable ground they occupied was shrinking fast. One more jump might do it, said Master Satil. Are you ready? Axe wasn't, but there was no way she'd admit it. The boiling red gap between them and safety was too large already, and it was growing by the second. Ready, she said. They ran and leapt together. For a moment, they were high above the drowning maze, held aloft by the force and momentum, and nothing could touch them. Axe wished she could stay there forever, in that peaceful place where contradictory forces canceled out and all was still. But gravity conquered all. The ground came closer too quickly, and she screamed as bright red lava rose up to engulf them. An hour into the battle, Ula realized that betraying the Republic was going to be much harder than he had imagined, even from his privileged position high above the battlefield. The problem lay in the sheer amount of data pouring from the battlefield into the Auriga fire. It was impossible to keep track of it all, let alone to decide which isolated part could be best manipulated in order to benefit his masters. He could barely keep up with the torrent as it was. Missiles full of hexes had restored the orbital defenses and provided new weapons with which to pound the combined fleets, making it difficult to lend ground support to the teams below. The CI target was burning, and the pole was hidden under smoke. Comms were erratic at best. Ula had no way of knowing what was going on down there, and the situation on the moon was little different. The hexes had been strafed repeatedly, but without sending in troopers to tackle them face to face, it was impossible to tell if the infection had been contained. Every time the Alliance made progress, Lima Zandrit's tenacious creations bounced back in a new and surprising way. I have locks on three subspace targets, reported Striver. Their relays scattered across the globe. That was good news. Send the coordinates to Kalish and Pippoliti. Tell them to take all three out. We should keep one intact, said Jet. How are we going to infiltrate their comms if they don't have any comms left? How close are we to cracking their cipher? I don't know. Clunker has worked out the transmission protocols, allowing us to pretend we're the CI. But we're no closer to figuring out the actual language it's using. Then I can't afford to take the chance. We know they'll build new relays anyway. This way we gain a momentary advantage. We need every one of those we can get. Jet killed the ship's calm for a moment. Here's something else to worry about. What if Strivers staying out of the fight purely to get those ciphers? With them, he could turn the hexes on us. Ula hadn't thought that far ahead. You're right. And we can't have that. When Clunker cracks the code, let's keep it to ourselves. That would make us unstoppable. You don't strike me as the ruling the galaxy sort, but I'm not sure about your masters. Ula had absolutely no desire to rule anything. There would be no hiding in the shadows at all while seated on a throne. And he wasn't going to say anything about his masters, true or false. What about you? The question was a loaded one, and Ula had his hand on the holdout blaster while he asked it. Jet laughed. What? Give up my carefree life? I don't think so, mate. Too much red tape by half. A new red light joined the many flashing on the instrument panel. An alarm joined it. Multiple launches, Jet said. All laughter forgotten. From the planet and the moon, too, this time. He stopped and peered closer at the viewscreens. 
Something's headed our way. The CI must have noticed us sitting here, keeping entirely too low a profile. Time to move. Ula notified the leaders of the combined fleet that he was now a target and would be changing orbit. The commoner acknowledged immediately, but didn't offer any kind of tactical support. The Paramount said nothing at all, just sent a squadron of interceptors. Negative, negative, said Jet to the squadron leader. Return to the fight. We'll be okay, and we'll holler if that changes. The colonel's orders were very specific, came back the reply. We're not to let you out of our sights. The phrase had threatening connotations that Ula was certain were intentional. Kalish, get those ships off our tail, said Jet to the Paramount. I've got more important things to worry about than your trigger-happy hotshots. Put me through to the director, came the reply. No name, thought Ula. Just a title. Colonel, he said. This is Director V.E. Your resources are needed elsewhere. We have to punch through that defensive shell to gain access to the polar regions. Darth Kratos explained your situation, Kalish said over him. I really must insist. Ula closed his eyes. This was an open line. If he bowed to the colonel's wishes, it would be tantamount to acknowledging that he favored, or could at least be influenced by, the Imperials. The time was not yet right to do that. Negative, colonel. I have advised you to send your fighters elsewhere. Recall them, or I will be forced to interpret your intentions as hostile and request assistance from Captain Pippolidi. Again, the Paramount said nothing, but the ships did at least change course. Ula mopped his brow. Not only was he failing to betray the Republic, but he was now being forced to defy an officer in the Imperial Navy. Why are we doing this again? Beats me, said Jet. Officially, I'm still hoping to turn a profit, but that's looking less and less likely every minute. Is that really all you're interested in? Ula asked, suddenly irritated by the smuggler's pretense. Can't it be? Jet shot back. I think you're doing yourself a disservice. If people knew what you and your ship could really do... No one would ever let me dock anywhere. If they think I'm a hopeless bum, that gives me an edge. It keeps me safe, like to Sabarish. If she'd known that I could have taken my ship back any time, she wouldn't have let me hang around to see what happened. And if I hadn't hung around, I wouldn't be here. Granted, here is not looking so comfortable at the moment... But that could change. Life is surprising. I think we'll pull something out of the hat. It just seems dishonest. Jet said, you should talk. Ula bristled. What do you mean? Come on, mate. I know what you are. I've known from the second I saw you. Why do you think I asked you for a drink? Ula drew the holdout blaster and pointed it at Jet. Tell me what you think I am. I think you're a braver man than you're letting on, Jet said without flinching. To your superiors, you're just a pawn. To your enemies, you're worse than evil. You're caught between wanting to do your job and trying to keep your job hidden. It drives you crazy, but you can't confide in anyone. You have to keep it all locked away, and no one ever appreciates how hard that is. We're expected to just keep on going, blokes like us. Because if we trip, there's no safety net. Ula bristled. I'm nothing like you. We're more alike than you think. I've been a pawn, and recently too. Why do you think I was working as a privateer? It wasn't for the good times, let me tell you. 
You're unprincipled, immoral. I'm glad you think so. That means the cover's working. You're not making any sense. Why are you telling me this? Do you want me to shoot you or not? I want us to work together, exactly as we have been. How can we possibly do that now? You're speaking like one of them, said Jet, gesturing at the hollow projector. You're not human, but you look human to me. What does it matter who we really are? It's what we do that matters. But what am I supposed to do? You could put that blaster down for a start, before I ask Clunker to take it from you. Ula stared at him for a long, tortured moment. They had a battle to coordinate. And what had really changed? Jet could have revealed Ula's secret at any time, just as Ula could have revealed Jet's, making them even. Nothing was causing the confrontation between them except his own uncertainty and doubt. If Jet thought him brave, perhaps it was time to be. All right, he said, lowering the blaster. Clunker, who had approached somehow without Ula noticing, stepped away. Thank you, said Jet with a loose grin. You know what the weird thing is? I can't tell who you're working for. I mean, I know how it's supposed to be playing out, but on a practical level, you've got me beat. As far as I can see, you're just trying to do the right thing. A series of alarms began to sound. Uh-oh. The smuggler's carefree mood evaporated. This is what happens when you don't pay attention. Ula hurriedly scanned the telemetry. More launches. More agglomerations forming to target the combined fleets. Still no good news from the ground, and no word at all on the Rin or her platoon. A mixed squadron of Republic and Imperial fighters had suffered an internal disagreement, leading to an exchange of fire. And a Turbodyne 1220 dropship had collided with the Republic NR2 during an assault run. Fierce recriminations were being exchanged by the two sides, and neither Captain Pippoliti nor Colonel Kalish responded to his hails. Now what? asked Ula. Well, if we're not going to run, said Jet, I suggest we turn the full capacity of our scheming minds to finding a way to survive. Wait a minute. Where's Striver? I can't see him. He could be around the back side of the moon, or... An urgent beeping joined the already strident alarm calls. The map of Sabaddon turned red at the South Pole. Ula stared in amazement as the defensive shell of hexes began to part, creating an opening. They're letting us in? Don't bet on it, said Jet. Through the opening in the orbital defenses flew the familiar silver quarter moon of Striver's ship, rising up in a perfectly vertical line. What's he doing there? Running, I think. Close on Striver's wake came a monster bursting from the heart of the planet. Lorin ignored the shrieking of alarms and the flashing red lights filling her suit's helmet. The unlucky shot appeared not to have damaged the fuel line to her jet chute, but its gyros were completely destroyed. If her airfoil had been intact, that would at least have been a stabilizing effect. But it was nothing but tatters now. Kicking and skidding wildly across the sky, she was completely out of control. She refused to give in. There had to be a way to bring the jet chute down safely, and her with it. First thing first, to get manual control of the jet. It was behind her, but by letting out the restraints, she could wriggle around so it was thrusting from her chest. The noise was deafening. 
She darkened her visor so the flashes wouldn't blind her. At least she still had her instruments. It was hard to get a sensible altimeter reading, so she didn't know exactly how much time she had, but the temperature outside was clear, well below the line. Any exposed flesh would freeze solid in just moments. All the better to work quickly, then. Tugging off her left glove, she used the artificial digits of her prosthetic to pull at the thruster casing. It fell away behind her. Up or down, she couldn't tell. The horizon was turning wildly around her. Just glancing at it made her feel giddy. She concentrated on the wiring inside the jet chute casing instead. Steam hissed into the thin, cold air. Luckily, her fingers weren't affected by heat either. The jet chute was an uncomplicated machine, designed to be rugged rather than versatile. There would be all sorts of safeties and overrides, but she didn't need them. She just wanted the switch that turned the thrust on and off. A sharp tug on a particular component had the latter effect. Suddenly everything was still, and she was weightless. The world below still turned, but at least it wasn't changing direction three times every second. Now that she had to look at it, she could see how much closer it had come. Perilously so. That wasn't what mattered. At the moment, she had to correct her spin. She counted furiously under her breath, judging the correct burn by instinct more than conscious calculation. She shoved her artificial fingers into the hot innards and switched the thrust back on, just for a second. She jerked across the sky, slewing madly. Too much, too long. She had to be more precise. Counting again, she tried a second time, with more success. She was still tumbling afterward, but not so badly that the thickening air couldn't get a stabilizing grip on her. She spread her limbs in a star shape until she was falling steadily face forward. The complex at the planet's south pole was coming up at her with frightening speed. She activated the jet chute and kept it on full, fighting it at every moment to keep it pointing straight down. It was like trying to balance on a pin. The slightest wobble threatened to tip her over and put her back where she started. She gritted her teeth and held on. Slowly, steadily, her downward plunge began to ease. She had time to examine where she was landing. It was a broad, flat plane, crisscrossed with deep cracks that looked too straight to be natural. A door, was her first thought, leading to something underground. Around it stood a number of cannon emplacements, all aiming for targets elsewhere, fortunately. It was hard enough just coming down straight, let alone dodging. She wanted to look behind her, to see where the others were, but the merest attempt to do so threatened to upset her delicate balance. Slower and slower she fell, until she was traveling barely more than running speed. The ground was just dozens of meters away. She began to feel relief. Against all odds, she was going to make it. With a guttering cough, the jet chute ran out of fuel. No! She yelled. But words weren't enough. She was falling again, and rapidly gaining speed. Just seconds lay between her and being squashed like a bug against the hard face of Sabaddon. Nothing could save her now. Strong limbs wrapped around her chest. With a gasp, she felt herself squeeze tight and pulled backward. She couldn't see what had happened, but she recognized the gloves gripping together in front of her. They were standard Republic issue. The jet chute belonging to the owner of those gloves strained and whined, slowing them so they landed with a tumble, not a splat. Lorin couldn't believe her luck. Clambering to her feet, 
She helped her savior free of his jet chute and airfoil harness. His faceplate cleared, and she recognized Hetchkey. Couldn't let you go like that, he said matter-of-factly. Equipment failure is inexcusable. Thank you, she said, meaning both syllables with all her heart. What happened to Jop? Called me for help. Didn't you hear him? Lorin hadn't, but she didn't press it. She had been a little busy at the time. The important thing was that she had survived. As long as Jop stayed out of her way, they need never talk again about how his hesitance had almost cost her her life. Right, she said, slipping her glove back onto her frost and heat-blackened hand. We've got some regrouping to do, and hexes to kill. Any idea where our squads came down? They ran together for the rendezvous point, jumping over two of the deep cracks along the way. They were definitely machined into a ferrocrete-like surface, with some kind of black sealant at the base. If they weren't the edges of a massive door, then they could have been canals. But for what? Any water lying around would be frozen solid. They could conceivably have been roads for hexes, only none were in sight. The rendezvous point was a mess of weapons fire. Republic and Imperial troopers had dug in and were either setting charges or laying covering fire, hoping to take out the cannons in range. Major Cha barked orders over the patchy comms as bombardment rained down from above. Imperial combat droids lumbered in perfectly straight lines across the battlefield, spitting fire at distant targets. Lorin hadn't grasped how large the Master Factory site truly was. Standing on top of it, she couldn't see the edges. Moxla, take a squad and put Tower Number 5 out of business. I'll send someone after you once you're laid in. Yes, sir. There was no easy way to tell one squad from another, so she picked a sergeant at random and assigned him to the mission. He was an Imperial, but that didn't matter. On the ground, under enemy fire, troopers were all the same. Several supply sleds had come down nearby, and she helped herself to all the launchers and charges she could carry. With the sergeant and his squad in tow, she lopped across the flat dome, carefully watching the orientation of the cannon emplacement. At some point, they would be noticed. She crossed another crack and dropped down inside. It was just deep enough for her to crouch out of sight. She followed the crack until they were as close as they needed to be, and there she ordered the squad to stop. Get those launchers unloaded and ready to fire! Sergeant, I want three of your best shots to go on ahead to provide distracting fire. Another three to go back and do the same. Spread out and space your rounds. Keep that emplacement busy. Yes, sir. The launchers were lightweight and easy to assemble. They were ready in moments. As a broad field of fire converged on the tower, more potent punchers attacked it at regular intervals, shrouding its uppermost reaches with thick black smoke. Still, it fired, though. You and you! Lorin said, pointing at two troopers at random. With me! She grabbed a belt of explosive charges and leapt out of the trench. The troopers followed, running hard for the base of the tower. The emplacement was already busy tracking multiple targets. Hopefully three more would escape unnoticed. Halfway, they were targeted. The trooper on her right went down, blasted up his middle by pulses of purple fire. Lorin and her sole companion dodged left, and the next wave went wide. Then it was targeting the grenade launchers again, and they reached the base unharmed. It was ten meters across and as solid as a mountain. She gave half the charges to the trooper, 
One every two meters. Set to blow on my command. He nodded and set off, moving around the base in the direction opposite hers. When they met up, they retreated as far as they dared and dropped flat. The emplacement didn't seem to notice them. It was firing upward at something she couldn't see. She pushed the remote detonation switch, and debris exploded over their heads. The top of the tower leaned, began to fall. Then a much brighter flash came from behind her, and the Fair Creek ground bucked. Lorin glanced back and saw a large mushroom cloud rising from the rendezvous point. It had been hit by heavier munitions than she'd seen in play from the hexes before. Either Xandrit's droids had evolved again, or they'd knocked something from above off course. Maybe, she thought, that was what the emplacement had been firing at right before she'd destroyed it. Bombardment deflected just enough to hit the invading forces. It was going to take ages for the dust to settle, but at least the comms had cleared. She got up and put out a call for all officers to report in. Hetchke spoke up from the other side of the dome, and one Imperial lieutenant. No others. No Major Chaw. A silver shape flashed through the clouds above, glinting in the sun. Is that you, Striver? She called. Tell me what you see up there. One of the major subspace sources is right under your feet, the Mandalorian replied. Why put it so far from the CI? She didn't know the answer to that question, and the calm dissolved into static again before she could ask him anything else. She signaled her trooper to follow her back to the trench. The rest of the squad had reformed and were packing up the launchers, preparatory to moving elsewhere. Lorin didn't know what her next objective should be. Keep taking out towers? Try to find the others? Without Major Cha, it was going to be difficult to coordinate everyone who remained. As she hastily considered her options, the black surface at the bottom of the trench shifted. She looked down at her feet and saw a ripple pass through the rubbery black material. It shifted again, and a deep subterranean groan surrounded her. Move! she told the squad. If this whole thing is a door, then... The world fell out from under her before she could finish the sentence. She lunged and barely caught the nearest edge of the trench. The black surface had dissolved, as though its molecular structure had suddenly changed from a solid to a liquid. Two troopers fell into blackness, firing at nothing. Their shots ceased after less than a second. Lorin hauled herself out of the suddenly bottomless trench. Another groan shook the air. The opposite walls lurched apart. Ten meters, twenty meters. She was standing with half the squad on the edge of an ever-widening trench. On the other side, the rest of her troopers receded into the distance. The dome was unfolding, sliding finger-like segments of roof into deep recesses at its edge and releasing a vast upwelling of warmer air. Tendrils of fog sprang into being, mixing with the smoke and creating strange shapes all around her. She looked down and saw something huge and indistinct stirring. Whatever it was, the hexes must have been building it nonstop, using all the prodigious resources of the metal and energy-rich world. What is that thing? One of her troopers asked, loud enough to be heard without a calm. I don't know, she said. But those look like repulsors. There, around its edge. It's a ship? Shaped like that? Where are its engines? A crazy thought occurred to her. Maybe there aren't any. The troopers looked at her like she was talking gibberish. The segment of dome they were standing on was nearing the edge of the roof. We can't stay here much longer, she told what was left of the squad. 
I advise you to get ready to jump. Down under that? Asked one, pointing at the object rising toward them. I think it's a skyhook, she said, bracing herself. So we won't be going down for long. Shigar stepped out of his jet chute harness and stared in horror at the bubbling bright red lake where his intended landing site had been. He had watched the furious equator-bound descent of the transport while riding down in its wake. Its impact had sent a shockwave through the complex maze, which buckled and then subsided into the fluid beneath. Everyone on that maze had been swallowed. There were only a few late arrivals left, standing around the edge of the crater like him, staring down into the death of all their hopes. Master Satil had been in that maze, somewhere, with Eldon Axe. Shigar had tried calling his master via both the suit and the force, but received no response to either. All he could see moving were hexes, bobbing and swimming through the red tide, apparently unharmed. Three surviving cannon emplacements fired at anyone in range, to little effect. Darth Kratos had descended with him and landed not far away. Not only must I seek a new apprentice, said the Sith Lord, red lightsaber standing out at his side like a standard, but it appears that you are in need of a new master. Shigar's grief and frustration found a target. You made this happen, he said, turning away from the awful view to confront the ancient enemy of the Jedi Order. Not I, boy. The Emperor, then, with all his dreams of murder and domination, slaughtering his way across the galaxy. I don't see the Emperor here, do you? You're mocking me. Because you deserve to be mocked, boy. You are naive and sheltered, thanks to the nonsense your masters have fed you. The true face of the universe frightens you, and you fall back on that nonsense to explain your fear. Only a child closes its eyes when frightened. Look around you and grow up. Shigar felt his hackles rising, even though he knew Darth Kratos was trying to get exactly this reaction from him. You can't deny that the Sith stole Cynthia Zandrit from her mother. That's what led us here. Lima Zandrit was brilliant and mad. She's the one to blame Shigar, or Striver for not letting the matter rest. Or you. Me? What did I do? It was you who brought the matter to your master's attention. Stand back. Shigar activated his lightsaber. Darth Kratos was getting entirely too close. The red of his blade matched the lava and the sky above. It looked to Shigar like the whole world was turning to blood. Darth Kratos stopped five paces away, a contemptuously amused expression on his withered face. Blame the Emperor for all your troubles if you must, he said. Blame the Empire as a whole. Given the chance, would you explain to all of them how they have been so very wrong? Would you address the Sith and the ministers and the troopers and the spies? I fear they wouldn't listen to you. Not even the people you might imagine to be on your side. The oppressed, the disenfranchised, the dissidents. There are fewer of them than you imagine you know. And to the rest, you are the enemy. You and your Jedi and your Senate. They curse your name just as you curse ours. 
for the loved ones they've lost at your hands, for the goods stolen by your privateers, for the many hardships they've endured. You'll never win them over with your words, with your nonsense, so you'll be forced to kill them all. How does that sound to you, Padawan? Do you fancy yourself the greatest mass murderer in the history of the galaxy? If not, perhaps you should. For that is the path you are heading down. You and the Emperor. No different at all. You lie! Shigar backed away, even though Darth Kratos had made no physical move. The weight of his words was threat enough. That empty litany will not protect you now, boy. Not from yourself. We fight you because you are evil. Because you are slaves to the dark side. All those billions and billions. Would that the Sith were so plentiful. You have seduced them. Twisted their thoughts. They obey you because they fear you. Is the Republic so different? We have laws. Safeguards against abuses of power. We have laws, too, albeit different ones, and the Emperor is the ultimate safeguard. There can be no miscarriage of justice under his rule, for his word is law. Where is your precious justice on Coruscant? How has the Republic benefited from your leader's inept fumbling? Something blossomed in Shigar's mind like a flower. A flower of certainty, growing strong and sure in the darkness of the hour. He felt as though years of history had condensed to this moment. The reappearance of the Empire and the Mandalorians, the sacking of Coruscant, and the fragile treaty that restored it to a greatly diminished Republic. The annexation of Kifu and the subjugation of his people. It boiled down to him and Darth Kratos. You are the source of every bad thing that's happened to the galaxy, he said. That's why we have to fight you. War is inevitable, just like people say it is. There can be no lasting peace with the likes of you. You are more like us than you care to admit, Darth Kratos snarled. I am offering to save your life, boy. Join me as my apprentice, and I will open your eyes for good. There can be no peace, because peace is the lie. Strength comes only from conflict, and for there to be conflict, there must be an enemy. That is the truth that lies behind your master's teachings. Acknowledge it, embrace it, and you will understand why you can never serve them. Shigar steadied his lightsaber in a tight two-handed grip. Darth Kratos' deep-set eyes glittered. The tip of his lightsaber didn't move a millimeter. Shigar watched it closely waiting for the first blow to fall. The Sith Lord laughed, a dreadful cackling sound, all at odds with their circumstances. <laughs> Do you think I intend to kill you now, boy? You forget, we have a truce. Unless you plan to attack me, and I am forced to defend myself. I ought to attack you. Any kind of alliance with the Sith is flawed at its heart. Master Shan should never have agreed to it. It was her suggestion, remember? And see how it has trapped you. Obey me, and the truce holds. Attack me, and the truce is broken. Darth Kratos chuckled. <laughs> Which is it to be? 
Shigar wavered on the verge of acting. He could feel the need for it simmering in every muscle, every nerve. The force was ready. It filled his veins like lava, burning hot. He thought of Loren saying, You're thinking too much. His lightsaber moved as though of its own accord, sweeping forward into Darth Kratos' reach with an almost delighted hum. Their blades flashed together once, twice, three times, and the Sith edged back a step. Yes, excellent. Shigar didn't let him talk, pressing him with another combination of moves, staying light on his feet for the inevitable responses, feeling with every instinct, every breath, what must be done. They danced together along the lip of the crater, in full view of the surviving members of the attack force. No signals went up, no word to disband the alliance. Comms were down, so the joint assault of Sabaton went on. Darth Kratos rallied with a series of bold, vicious strikes that cost Shigar the ground he had made, and more. He struck back only with his blade, knowing that he would lose if the duel descended into a free-for-all of telekinesis and other force powers. That was inevitable. His only hope lay in Darth Kratos making an early mistake, giving Shigar an edge. Even then, it was going to be hard. The Sith didn't die easily. Neither do Jedi! He told himself. Even as sweat trickled into his eyes, and he tossed his helmet away. The better to fight unhindered. You are growing weary, said the Sith Lord. Your resolve is weakening. I can feel it. You know that you will never beat me this way. Your only hope is to reach into your heart for the anger that we both know is there. Anger will never rule me. Think of the Grand Master. Think of your homeworld and all who died there. Tell yourself that I killed them and seek the strength that knowledge brings. You had nothing to do with Kifu. Didn't I? Shigar fought on, matching Darth Kratos blow for blow. The red blade took three centimeters of his braid. He scored a line across the Sith's right shoulder. You cannot fight without the dark side. Shigar silenced his thoughts and feelings. He was only the blade. He was only the force. You cannot win without the dark side. Darth Kratos sent a wave of lightning across the gap between them. Shigar tried to catch it with his lightsaber. The shock coursed up the blade, into the hilt, and from there into his right arm. It burned like acid. Much more powerful and insidious than the blast Eldon Axe had hit him with on Hata. It didn't just hurt. It ate at his resolve, telling him to fight fire with fire, to use the Sith Lord's own weapons against him in defiance of his own master's advice. If he didn't, he would surely die. Shigar fell to his knees, the beginnings of a scream whistling through his clenched teeth. Why didn't she warn you? The whisper of doubt in his mind had a voice now. Your master is famous for seeing the future, so why didn't she tell you this lay ahead of you? Because there was nothing she could do about it, that's why. Her teachings are weaker than those of the Sith, and she knows it. She knows that the Jedi will lose the war that's inevitably coming. She knows the Emperor will win. By keeping this secret from you, she has killed you. She lied to you, just as the High Council has lied to you. They don't care about justice. They are corrupt and weak. All you have to do is turn your back on them, and you will live. 
Darth Kratos' lightning passed through Shigar's body and down to his left hand. There it concentrated into a ball, blindingly bright, waiting to be set free. Strike me, said the voice, and rise up again, stronger than ever before. Die, said Shigar in a voice that didn't sound like his own. Die! When he raised his hand, Darth Kratos wasn't even looking at him. The Sith Lord's attention had been captured by a shadow that had fallen across them. The thing that had cast it was enormous and bulbous, like a fist as big as a city rising slowly out of the lake. Lava dripped from it like water. Such was his shock that the Sith lightning concentrated in Shigar's left hand fizzled out. The rest went with it, along with the pain. Shigar understood then, with piercing clarity, that he had been the source of all of it. Ever since Darth Kratos' initial lightning strike, the voice whispering in his mind, and the doubts it had expressed, had been none other than his own. His lightsaber lay in blackened pieces at his feet. His suit stank of smoke. He stood up. The thing from the lake towered over them, no longer rising, just looming, blocking out the sky. The noise it made was deep and resonant, like the song of a deep-sea mammal. It sounded like a summons offered in the language of worlds. A small silver dot moved across the sky, Striver Scout. Beyond that hung the brilliant constellations of the combined fleets. Flashes of light danced among them, indicating that they were returning fire. Shigar couldn't tell if they were firing at the hexes or one another. He looked down at his hands. His gloves were burned right through, but his fingers and palms were undamaged. This is the path laid down for you, said Master Satil into his mind. They were the same words she had used on Coruscant. Shigar almost wept with commingled triumph and despair. She was alive, but where did that leave him? Was he tainted by the dark side, even though he hadn't actually struck out at Darth Kratos? Had Master Satil truly known all along that it would come to this and never warned him? Again, he thought of Lorin, telling him that he was lucky for being lifted out of obscurity to train for the Jedi Order. He'd even believed her and found strength in the knowledge that his master and the High Council would endure. Whatever happens today, you'll go back to the life you know. Not anymore. The galaxy is painted in black and white, he realized, feeling the truth and certainty of it deep in every bone. But from far enough away... It all looks gray. Wow, we were just whisked away on a breathtaking voyage that transcended the boundaries of this very galaxy. I found myself utterly engrossed in every twist and turn. The Star Wars universe unfolded with unparalleled magnificence, and the anticipation for what lies beyond is simply staggering. But before we forge ahead into the next episode, we must uncover the quote of this show, a proclamation that ignites the very essence of our journey. And this episode's quote comes to us from Joel Brown. He said the only thing that stands between you and your dreams is the will to try and the belief that it is actually possible. Now what does this quote mean? It means that the only thing stopping you from achieving your dreams is your own determination to take action and your belief that you can make it happen. What it's saying is that you have to have the courage to do your best and you can overcome any obstacle that comes your way. A Star Wars actor that I had a great opportunity of meeting gave me a piece of advice that was almost the same as this quote. When Harrison Ford was a teenager, he had a dream of becoming an actor. He loved movies and imagined himself on a big screen, playing exciting characters and telling captivating stories. 
but becoming an actor seemed like a far-fetched dream, and some people doubted whether he had what it took. Despite the doubts, Harrison decided to pursue his dreams. He knew that it would take a lot of hard work, dedication, and a strong belief in himself and his acting abilities. So he took acting classes, practiced his craft, and auditioned for various roles. Harrison faced many challenges along the way. He went to auditions where he was rejected and he struggled to make ends meet. But instead of giving up, he persisted because he truly believed that he could become an actor. One day, an opportunity came knocking. He got a role in a film called American Graffiti. Although it was a small part, it led him to do line readings for Han Solo. At the time, he was just doing carpentry for the set of Star Wars, but he made an impression on George Lucas. Harrison got the part in his big break, his chance to prove himself. His belief in his own ability and his determination to try his best showed through. To his amazement, Star Wars became a massive success. Harrison Ford's portrayal of Han Solo propelled him to stardom, and we all know the rest of the story. But it teaches us that no dream is too big if you have the will to try and the belief in yourself. You have the power to pursue your dreams and to make them a reality. If you dare to take action, work hard, and truly believe in yourself and your abilities, you can overcome any doubt or obstacle that comes your way. And I think that's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and I hope you will join me next time for more adventures in a galaxy far, far away. Until then, may the Force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic's Fatal Alliance was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.